Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Russia's war on Ukraine gets bloodier as the battle for Donbass reaches a fevered pitch, and Vladimir Putin compares himself to Peter the Great and cracks down more harshly at home. Meanwhile, the Swedish Social Democratic government has remained in power thanks to a Kurdish lawmaker who has called on Sweden to support Kurds in Syria, complicating Stockholm's bid to join NATO in the face of staunch Turkish opposition. Meanwhile, the markup process on the Hill has gained steam as lawmakers assess the Biden administration's defense budget requests. A committee investigating the January 6th insurrection held its first public hearing with a string of blockbuster revelations from the mouths of some of the participants in what lawmakers described as America's first ever attempted coup by a sitting president. In Asia, China has continued to escalate tensions around North Korea, which itself is expected to conduct a nuclear test within days, with Beijing harassing Australian, Canadian, and other aircraft monitoring Pyongyang's nuclear program. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top uh, defense and aerospace lobbying firms, joining us after a couple of weeks off uh, because Congress was out of session, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations and now ranks as uh, our uh, Ukraine war correspondent reporting to us today from Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Michael, welcome back. Uh, start us off, right? Where are we on markup and some of the bigger moves that the committees are making uh, as what is effectively a pretty historic uh, Biden administration defense budget request goes through, right? Biggest ever, even if uh, it might not be uh, as big as everybody had initially wanted it. It looks like steam is 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 building for a bigger measure. Walk us through where we are on, on markup. Sure. So the process is uh, well underway, and we're going to see a lot more action this month and next month until everything grinds to a screeching halt, uh, and then we end up with another CR uh, in the fall. But uh, in the meantime, you know, the House um, has seven subcommittees, and all of them marked up this week, uh, four on Wednesday, uh, three on Thursday. Uh, but you know, the real action will be in the full committee markup, which will be on the 22nd. Uh, the subcommittee markups were fairly uneventful. Uh, all of them, except for one, passed with no amendments. The Sea Power uh, subcommittee markup had some minor amendments to it. Uh, you know, one thing of note, I mean, the Strategic Forces subcommittee, uh, as of now, depending on what happens to full committee markup, plans to impose restrictions on the travel budget for Deputy Secretary, you know, Kath Hicks, which is really a hardball move to force the Pentagon to let people know which entity is responsible for uh, defense against cruise missiles. And in response, you know, the Pentagon's already responded saying that by July, they will designate uh, the appropriate uh, agency. Uh, as you know, the, you know the, there's gonna be some big issues in the markup. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, I think the tanker will be an issue, uh, restocking missiles sent to Ukraine. Uh, you know, what the administration will, plan, will be forced to do as far as nuclear weapons, uh, whether they'll be create a national, uh, a space national guard, 
Uh, but the big item will be the, the funding. And we've talked in previous uh, podcasts about some of the big numbers that have been being tossed around. I mean, some people were talk, talking anywhere from 50 to 150 billion uh, extra for defense because of the inflation numbers. And also on top of that, keeping pace with the 5% mandated by the national defense strategy. Uh, now, some of the steam is starting to come out of that. Now, I think we're going to see uh, an amendment that adds money to defense, but I would anticipate that number being below the 50 billion number, possibly somewhere gently south of 40 billion. Now, the Senate, from what I understand, will see that as a starting point. Uh, I think that it'll be interesting to see what the Senate Armed Services Committee does next week with their market because they mark up next week. And the appropriators, we still have a long way to go and what they're going to do. Now, uh, the House will do their full committee markup on the 22nd. The House Appropriators uh, Defense Subcommittee will mark up on June 15th, and the full committee will be June 22nd. But right now, I would expect the repeat of what we saw last year, that the House Appropriators will not add money in their markup. That, that additional money will come in the Senate, and then will be dealt with in a final budget deal at the end of the year. Even though the top-line budget number has been deemed, the four corners have met, and there is no agreement on, on a number. And again, you know, uh, Senator Shelby has said repeatedly that he does not anticipate an agreement on a top line number until after the election. There were folks who thought 100 was ambitious in terms of a plus up. 150 was deemed as fantastical, even if we could justify how that money would be spent. Right. And from a lawmaker's perspective, it does eliminate any hard choices. Right. I mean, the administration at least deserves credit, whether you agree with them or not, is trying to do this in a way that is on a sustainable budget trajectory, as opposed to like surging up and uh, up and up and down and trying to be at least realistic. Um, when you say no consensus, is there actually no consensus or is there an actual double secret probation consensus? Uh, you know, so it'll be closer to 80, right? I mean, what, what, what are you hearing in terms of the granulars of no consensus? Because that's just a negotiating position often. The problem with consensus is you have to get it between the House and the Senate. And they're going to be on completely different pages when it comes to this. I mean, the House has problems on both its left and its right. The progressives want to cut defense spending. And now you're starting to hear some rumblings among the right that they want to cut defense spending as well. So while I anticipate an increase over and above the president's budget request this year, the real battle lines are going to be drawn next year. Uh, if the Republicans are in charge, which people believe they will be, I mean, the first thing they're going to have to do next year is raise the debt ceiling. And spending is going to be front and center and there's going to be pressure to cut domestic spending and, you know, uh, discretionary spending. And, you know, as you know, that's not where the problem is. I mean, the, the administration recently celebrated the fact that the annual budget deficit is a trillion dollars. Okay. Well, you know, domestic discretionary spending is 1.6 trillion. So, so let's say you cut 50 billion from defense and 50 billion from non-defense. What difference does it make if the annual budget deficit is 900 billion or a trillion? I mean, it's not right. where the problem lies. The problem lies on the revenue side. The problem lies on the mandatory side. Uh, but that won't matter on Capitol Hill. It's all going to be about the messaging on this. So I think that you're going to see a number that's going to be higher. Again, I think it's going to be well south of the 50 billion number in the House. But that's going to be because you're going to have to appease both the left and the right. And neither side is going to walk away happy. The Senate is going to be the one that's going to drive this final number at the end of the day. And, I, and, I, and I'm hopeful uh, that they are able to get this done this calendar year, uh, because right. if it slips into next calendar year, we really will be in serious danger of a long-term, possibly year-long CR because the optics of raising the debt ceiling and passing $1.6 trillion in spending are going to be very difficult for uh, a new Speaker of the House for the, for the Republicans. And, and obviously, I mean, we're thinking that that's going to be uh, McCarthy 
uh, at this point, if all, all things go the way he's been uh, planning. Um, let's uh, talk, you know, every, everything about our system is, is two steps forward, one step back, two steps backwards, <laughs> three steps, three steps back uh, as it is per your first uh, answer. You know, it looked good until eh, not, not so much. Um, so COVID uh, is still a thing. Uh, Build Back Better is not yet dead, although uh, it is it is really up for zombie uh, uh, territory. Uh, and we also had primaries. So sort of walk us through all of that. And we'll get to January 6th later uh, in the program. But walk us through these cats and dogs, if you will. And then you've got gun uh, legislation on this, right? I mean, you, uh, you know, you were not optimistic in the beginning that there was uh, going to be uh, something in the in the wake of Uvalde and Buffalo and so many other incidents that we've seen over the last couple of weeks alone. Um, you know, where, where are we on all of that? Well, I, I love your analogy on, on BBB to the zombies. Cause I was actually going to say, it's, it reminds you of night of the living dead, right? <laughs> I, I mean, BBB is dead. It just doesn't know it yet. And, uh, and they're really, you know, the legislative clock is ticking. They're really running out of days, but the Democrats refuse to let it drop. Manchin and Schumer continue to have conversations, but yet Manchin yesterday was very neutral on it. He, he said, look, we're talking, we'll see. I don't know. I have no clue whether something will come together. But I've talked to several senior Democratic staff and they just don't want to let this vehicle of reconciliation go to waste and go unused. They really feel they want they need to do something. I'm still optimistic it's going to happen. And also, the longer that hangs out there, the harder it is to come to a top line number in a budget deal. So that also is, becomes a problem. Now, COVID, you're exactly right. COVID still remains a thing. And the administration is recognizing now, I think, that they're not going to be able to get this supplemental passed on Capitol Hill. So they're taking action uh, themselves. So they are um, moving $5 billion in existing funds so they can purchase updated versions of vaccines. Then they're also going to repurpose another uh, $5 billion to secure access uh, to therapeutics. So the administration is treating it seriously and using existing funds to try to address uh, their, their shortfall. Um, so then you know, we did talk about guns. And you're right, I, I have been pessimistic uh, on, on this, but now I really uh, am more optimistic. Uh, I, I see how both sides are handling it uh, very responsibly. I mean, you have folks that are usually pretty hardcore, like Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, basically saying, look, we just got to do something, right? I mean, they're not going to hold out for things they know they can't get. And you really have behind the scenes the blessing of Mitch McConnell to have these discussions. I think it's very significant. You know, there would not be a bipartisan infrastructure bill today if it was not for Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell blessed those bipartisan discussions. He kept popping his head in to see how things were going, and he voted for that bill at the end of the day. And you see people like John Cornyn, who hopes someday to replace uh, Mitch McConnell, taking a leadership role in these gun talks. Senators like Mike Braun, uh, who, again, is very conservative, coming out saying, I'm a gun owner. Uh, I use them a lot, but I think it hurts the Second Amendment over time if you don't do the stuff that makes sense. So the question will be, you know, what do they feel it makes sense? I mean, the the House passed a lot of measures uh, last week that really are more on the messaging side, you know, raising the age to purchase semi-automatics, preventing gun trafficking, banning ghost guns, fines for unsafe storage, banning uh, bump stocks, uh, banning high capacity magazines, um, you know, so uh, a plethora of other things, right? Those are things that are not going to come law at the end of the day. But uh, there are, I think, you know, some common ground on incentivizing states to create red flag laws, uh, expanding background checks to include consideration of juvenile records, uh, bolstering the nation's uh, mental health network. Uh, you know, there are other things. I think that they possibly can't, they're not going to meet the deadlines they keep setting for themselves, but I still am holding up some optimism that something will pass. 
Uh, and on uh, primaries, anything interesting, right? I mean, Mike Franken, a retired United States Navy Vice Admiral, became the Democratic uh, nominee to uh, go against uh, Chuck Grassley uh, in Iowa. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to specifically talk about that, but Tom Malinowski going to be in a tough race because of redistricting. I think you mentioned that. Uh, and I think the New York Times had a piece on that as well this week. Sort of your sense on what the primary outcomes mean. I mean, right, there was this sense that Trump's hold on the party was weakening. This would suggest it's a little stronger, even if Trump picked the guys who were going to win anyway, largely. I mean, what, what, do, what do we know about these primaries and how they change potentially uh, the defense committee outlooks? Oh, look, I think his primaries are really a mixed bag. I mean, the, the IRA race you point out was a loss for the progressives, right? Um, the progressives are winning some, they're losing some, uh, but I think they're losing more than people thought. And on their, on their Republican side, look, yes, some of the Trump-endorsed Trump candidates are winning, but some are losing. I mean, he suffered a tremendous loss in Georgia with Brian Kemp, uh, winning his primary by 50 points. I mean, that's an incredible blowout. And of course, Trump and his folks are alleging voter fraud. Um, so, you know, I, but I think in the end, you know, that more Trump is winning more of these primaries and losing. And, and, and that will be to the detriment of the Republican Party, because a lot of his candidates may not be able to win a general election. I mean, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is a must hold seat for the Republicans. Uh, and that one, I think, is in very big trouble right now. I don't think Oz is a very good general election candidate. John Fetterman for the Democrats is a very strong candidate, uh, but he's also fairly uh, progressive, even though he doesn't look it. Um, and then, you know, I think uh, Herschel Walker is going to have a tough go uh, in, in, in Georgia. Uh, Trump recently endorsed a guy named Blake Masters in Arizona. And that's a possible pickup for Republicans there against Mark Kelly. But Blake Masters, if he is the nominee, is very outside the mainstream. I mean, he has on his website proudly saying he's endorsed by Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene. So uh, it's, uh, and Missouri is another one that's a big concern for Republicans because Eric Greitens seems to be heading the polls. And Greitens is one that could lose that general election, even in a red state uh, like Missouri. So, uh, whereas I think the House is definitely going to go Republican. I think it's a question of how many seats could be uh, as low as 20, could be high as 35 or more. I mean, I've talked to Democrats who think it could be more than 30. But the Senate really could go either way. And I think uh, Trump could end up losing the Senate for the Republicans, just like he did last time. If it wasn't for Trump, the, the Republicans would have the Senate. They would have had those two Georgia seats if Trump had not stifled the turnout in the special elections in Georgia. I think there's almost universal uh, agreement with that among political analysts. Um, uh, Dove, uh, I want to bring you into the conversation. But first, you know, since you're uh, also one of our resident budget experts and political experts, I uh, wanted to give you uh, a chance to weigh into that before we get into sort of a, a meaty U Ukraine, Turkey and NATO discussion. Well, uh, first of all, I'm with Mike uh, pretty much across the board. I, it, it'll If the number goes above 40 or something like that, it'll probably be because of the Senate. And remember, uh, the House Armed Services Committee itself is not really the issue. As, as Michael said, it's it's the, the extremes on both sides. And of course, in conference, uh, the House could simply recede to the Senate and say, that's how it worked out. So the number, uh, I think, could be higher. Um, to me, the most interesting thing about these primaries was, uh, and you mentioned it in passing, is that Trump said that the election in Georgia was, the gubernatorial election was fraudulent, which means that all these Republicans who were voting were actually frauds. Uh, that is not likely to uh, energize uh, Republicans in Georgia to, to uh, 
take a, a Trump position and, and do what he suggested, which was to vote for Stacey Abrams. Uh, he's all over the place. And it seems to me that uh, while Georgia wasn't the only place where uh, he got it in the nose, but there were actually a lot fewer than some people may have anticipated, he's blown some big ones. And uh, you see uh, a lot of other Republican potential presidential candidates not exactly fading away. Uh, and, and it's not only Ron DeSantis. The two surprises on the Democratic side, of course, are the election in San Francisco, which otherwise would be quite minor. Uh, but a progressive was recalled in, in a city that's considered uh, uber progressive. And then again in Los Angeles, where a Republican, uh, until virtually the day before the election, when he became a Democrat, is coming out at, uh, over Karen Bass, longtime uh, member of the House of Representatives. So just as on the Trump side, on the Republican side, you've got some uh, straws in the wind that maybe Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump <laughs> may not be as strong as he thinks he is. Uh, on the Democratic side, the Democrats are going to have to think long and hard about to what extent they want to continue to tack toward the progressives if they don't want this next election to become a rout. Uh, and again, right. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's fascinating that Caruso in Los Angeles and the recall in San Francisco were all driven by rising crime. Uh, and ultimately, people saying, including Democrats saying, hey, listen, we, we just want the streets to be safe at the end of the day. We don't want bad policing. And I think that Biden is trying to, you know, uh, uh, hone in uh, on that message as well. Right. We want responsible policing, but we need policing. We need good policing. We just don't want it to be um but, uh, you know, potentially racist in its contour. Uh, well, the Democratic mantra seems to be, and Mr. Biden has said this as well, we also need gun control. And they're kind of trying to link the two by, by saying, well, you know, if we had gun control, maybe there would be less crime, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how the American public's going to buy that. The American public has been for gun control for quite a long time, and it hasn't made a difference in the way they voted. But crime does make a difference in the way they vote. Uh, in, indeed, although I, I think uh, that we may be at an inflection point given the wave uh, of recent violence. I, I, you know, there's nothing in the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, the Constitution says says nothing about cars either, and we regulate them and medicines and everything else. And it does say well-regulated militia. And the idea that personal ownership is a, is a new idea. Uh, if you look at it from uh, a constitutional sweep, I, I, so I don't deny you can that. put lim you can put limits on it. Ronald Reagan was for limits. That's not the issue. My point was simply that, yes, legislators will feel the pressure. But the as voters, the very people who support some kind of gun control, nevertheless, haven't necessarily changed their votes because of it. Whereas when it comes to crime, they do change their votes. Uh, 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 point, point well taken, Duff. Um, you are uh, now uh, in Istanbul. Uh, Russia has been playing each of its cards ruthlessly as possible. Uh, it's using raw firepower to try to encircle and crush Ukraine's army uh, in Donbass. Uh, it's targeting and destroying Ukrainian grain supplies methodically, while at the same time allegedly talking to Recep Tayyip Erdogan about opening up uh, grain train. Uh, it's sentencing to death uh, foreigners who are fighting for Ukraine. Uh, it's increasing its threats against all those who help Ukraine. Uh, and it even has the temerity to complain about cyber, mean, cyber means being used against 
Russia when it's been the most ag aggressive in using cyber uh, as a weapon, including early in this uh, conflict, as we saw against uh, Japan and a number of other nations, uh, right? I mean, a heroic effort on the part of uh, the United States and its allies to sort of blunt blunt that. Where are we and what's the Turkish view of where we are in the, in the war? Because I think the Ukrainians are making an impassioned plea, and I think a rightful one. You know, we're really grateful for the weapons we're getting, but we're not getting enough fast enough. You know, I, I think it was the foreign minister or the defense minister who said, look, these weapons would be terrific against any other nation in Europe, except for the Russians who, who have a firepower advantage. What, what are you hearing uh, while you were there in Istanbul, even though your your trip is, is relatively recent? You got there last night. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of things. The first big one, actually, is that uh, Erdogan announced yesterday that he's running again for president. No surprise. But it's kind of early and he actually challenged the opposition to say, OK, who are you putting up against me? Uh, and uh, as as we know, the Swedish government basically survived because of uh, and this was a vote over a, a relatively incompetent justice minister. Crimes going up there. Uh, they survived because of one vote of a, 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 a legislator named Amina Kakababa who uh, is of, a, of Iranian Kurdish origin and basically told the uh, government, if you don't support the Kurds, I'm out and you, you're out too. Um, and that creates a certain problem because Erdogan, given that he's announced that he's running, uh, is not going to be willing to uh, cave in to the Swedes in the sense of giving up on wanting uh, those 28 alleged PKK members to be turned over to Turkey. That means that right now there's a total impasse. And that in turn means that Sweden and Finland aren't coming in anytime soon unless the United States gets involved. So there's an which, issue, which there. is which, which is the commentary you wrote today in The Hill, right? Only Washington yes. can solve this. Yes. Yes. Now, as to uh, what the Turks are doing vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, um, they have allowed the uh, commercial ships to go through, and I'm watching them as I speak from my hotel room, go up the Bosporus and, and into the Black Sea, they have blocked uh, military ships. Now, clearly that creates a problem for the Russians, but not an overwhelming problem. And whether Erdogan will cut a deal with the Russians to allow grain to exit the Black Sea is still a very open question. I mean, after all said and done, uh, what does Erdogan get out of it? Uh, meanwhile, his drones are still killing Russian troops. So uh, that one is still very much up in the air. And he, of course, again, because he's announced uh, his uh, candidacy, will weigh all of this in terms of what's going to get him more votes or will it matter at all? Um, I, I've got I, I've got two um, uh, questions to put to you, and I just want to let the audience know that Sweden has a fascinating system where you can hold a no confidence vote on a member uh, of the cabinet. Uh, and what happened was that the justice minister, because of a rise in gang crime, uh, was uh, deemed by the legislature as not being up, you know, up to the task. We, we need to do more. Uh, and the Anderson government said, well, we'll resign unless um, you guys back down. And that's what gave uh, Amina, uh, Amina uh, Kakabave uh, an opportunity to come in there and be uh, the vote uh, that allowed uh, the government uh, to survive. Um, it's a, it's a two-part question, uh, Dove. So what is 
the way to reconcile this, uh, right? Because Kakabave did make a great point, right? She says Swedish law should be made in Stockholm, not in Ankara. Uh, and that not all of the people, right? I mean, she was a Peshmerga fighter uh, and she made the, the differentiation that not everybody is a terrorist, right? I mean, a terrorist is, uh, you know, uh, in the eye of the beholder. Uh, ultimately, even though there are some that are very cut and dried, there are others that are uh, fall in a gray area. And I think that that's the case that she's making. Um, you know, how what's the role Washington can play to resolve this? Because from a Turkish standpoint, um, you know, this this does constitute a security uh, to security uh, threat, uh, even if there are those who say, well, I mean, you know, Turkish actions may be precipitating uh, some of, uh, um, you know, the, the actions that Kurds in part uh, have been taking. Well, uh, first of all, you're right about the one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Uh, Nelson Mandela was considered a terrorist. Uh, in terms of... And, and uh, so was Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir. Right. And, and a uh, lot of others. Know, and George Washington. Uh, so you, uh, she's got a point. Uh, there's another issue, and that is, can the United, what can the United States offer? And it's clear that one thing that uh, Erdogan has wanted is to get back into the F-35 program. Now, it's three years since we essentially kicked Turkey out, uh, and the program has moved along. It's not clear that the uh, Turkish industry can make the same amount of money it thought it could make, but we're still probably talking of uh, north of a billion dollars. What has to happen? In, in order for us to let the Turks back in, the answer is pretty straightforward. The S-400s that Turkey bought from Russia, and oh, by the way, the, one of their leading uh, defense industry types announced that they want to buy a second tranche, which is, <laughs> really complicates matters if that would happen. But the issue has to be what happens to the S-400s. And I've suggested two possibilities. One is turn them over to the Ukrainians. Erdogan becomes a hero. Uh, the Ukrainians have used 300s. They'll learn how to use 400s pretty quickly. Problem solved, F-35s, et cetera. Uh, a more difficult one, but not impossible, is turning them over uh, or moving them to northern Cyprus. Nobody recognizes that as an independent country except Turkey. The Greeks will go nuts. But we're talking about air defenses. And the last time I checked, Greeks isn't about to attack northern northern Cyprus. So that is another possibility. The real issue, and I've heard this from several Swedes now, is they are deeply concerned, you know, having been encouraged by the United States and, and Mr. Biden himself saying how great it is that they should join NATO. Now the United States is saying you and Turkey sort it out yourselves. And given the politics in both countries, I don't know that how that gets done. There's another concern that uh, a lot of the uh, NATO allies in what they're now calling the Eastern Front have, uh, and that is that Mr. Macron and, and Mr. Schultz of Germany uh, are just, they keep on talking about finding a deal, and it's driving Zelensky crazy, it's driving the Poles of the Baltic states crazy, because they think that a deal right now really means accommodating the Russians, and it really means ceding territory, and that is not something that Zelensky is ready to talk about yet. Um, well, I mean, I, I would say uh, even French friends of mine are a little bit concerned about the rhetoric, right? I mean, this is Macron has decided, OK, our role will be mediator. We must play a prominent role. We will do this. There are a lot of historically very good reasons uh, for the French to say what they say about national humiliation, right? After World War One, it was France that insisted in humiliating Germany. 
never a good thing. What happened after World War II? Uh, everybody re-embraced Germany, uh, uh, despite what had happened, and created the EU, uh, right? I mean, so there, you know, it's not just self-serving, which is which is why uh, the French president is making these statements, even if everybody is looking at it as really, really unhelpful right now. Where where are we? Both sides are very exhausted. Um, you know, Ukrainians have said now between 100 and 200 Ukrainian soldiers are dying a day. Uh, incredible heroism uh, on the part of uh, Ukrainians. But they're also complaining that we're simply not getting enough as fast enough. Are we at an inflection point? And, you know, and, and does this satisfy Russia? And if it does satisfy Russia in the fighting ends, how does the international community, uh, Dov Zakheim, continue to punish the Russians for what it is they've done? You're not going to hit the reset button and get back to normal on this. No, you won't hit the reset button. And it's not really what does Russia do. It's what Mr. Putin thinks he wants to do. And we just don't know that. Um, there is uh, a lot of talk that there might be a pause over the summer so that Russia can regroup. Uh, and then uh, push a major offensive sometime in September. I'm hearing more and more talk like that. Of course, if there's a pause, that also allows the Ukrainians to get more weaponry, more equipment. Uh, they are not getting anything nearly as quickly as they had hoped. There are some good reasons. The Germans have their reasons. We have our reasons. But that doesn't really make the Ukrainians feel any better because there are reasons. If there is a pause, and if there is a, a renewal of conflict in September with Russia pushing ahead and Ukraine having a lot more weapons, uh, then the issue becomes that they have the people to use the weapons. And for at least for the short term, the answer is probably yes. But the short term means that this thing could go on well into next year. Nobody. The truth is nobody knows. We're talking about a war that the Russians thought would last five days that the West thought the Ukrainians might hold out a couple of weeks. And we're now in day 109, I believe, uh, right. with, and still counting. So um, nobody really knows. And the only one who might know is Mr. Putin, if he's made up his mind and there's no evidence that he has. Uh, indeed. Uh, right. I mean, uh, you know, and, and just when you thought uh, this couldn't get any uh, uh, odder, uh, you've got the apex autocrat who's been in power for more than uh, two de decades, uh, comparing himself openly uh, to Peter the Great. Uh, on it was like a 350th uh, uh, commemoration or celebration. The birthday, of, uh, of Peter the Great. Birthday of of uh, Peter the Great. Thank you very much, uh, Patrick. Uh, so uh, there, there you have it. Uh, well, remember you know, he, he's had a picture of Peter the Great in his office for some time. Yes, uh, and and another. And he is uh, from Saint Petersburg, after all. After all, and another interesting uh, twist to this is that some time ago, he moved the National Archives from the Ministry of Culture, I believe, to the presidential office and has been sending them the equivalent of Rumsfeld snowflakes, constantly asking about agreements that the czars made and what they gave up and what they were yes. able to seize yes. and so on. So we're talking about a guy who's obsessed in this regard. Uh, and Putin is. was saying, yeah, I mean, he was quoted as quoting Peter the Great, saying, what was Peter the Great doing? He was taking back and reinforcing and suggesting that's why he's taking Ukraine, yes. uh, a very twisted uh, kind of build back better program for Russia. <laughs> well, well said, Patrick. Um, and indeed, right. I mean, his whole notion is, uh, you know, to to rebuild uh, not just Russian glory, but Soviet uh, glory to its high watermark, which means all of that which was ours, uh, it remains ours. 
which is interesting, uh, Patrick. Very nice segue there. Uh, as we go to China, China has a very similar view. <laughs> it all used to be China. I'm not really taking anything. It was all mine uh, at the end of the day. Um, uh, you know, walk us through, uh, Patrick, uh, why Beijing is stepping up its intimidation of aircraft, Western aircraft, right? I mean, there was the altercation between the Australian Maritime Patrol aircraft uh, and a Chinese fighter showered it with chaff. We discussed that last week. Dangerous situation that could have uh, claimed the lives of nine Australian crewmen on that P-8. Um, we had a, another incident with a, a Chinese aircraft and a Canadian aircraft. Uh, the, the North Korean nuclear test is around the corner. I want to get to that in a minute. And and some of the many other developments right in the, in the naval base in Cambodia as well. Um, you know, give, giving lie to the notion that the Chinese don't have broader sort of aspirations. Um, you know, why is Beijing doing what it's doing, especially over North Korea and intimidating uh, and, and really behaving unsafely in international airspace? Like, well, why now? Why now? Well, it isn't just why now. I mean, we've noticed a more sort of China under Xi Jinping in particular, um, partly because Xi Jinping has ordered the PLA to uh, test under more realistic combat situations uh, how their forces would be used. Uh, they're also increasingly trying to push back on any U.S. and U.S. allied military operation exercise uh, presence throughout the Indo-Pacific. Um, and uh, we have, of course, the run-up to the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is happening now in Singapore, and uh, a prelude to the 20th Party Congress that's uh, later this fall in China, where um, you know Xi Jinping's priority right now is economic and social stability at home. Um, and one way to maybe allow that stability is to uh, reenact the guardians of the airspace, uh, as they uh, call the, uh, the fallen PLA pilot who, who threatened the EP-3 um, and forced it to land in Hainan. Um, you know, more than 20 years ago. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why China's acting up here on their periphery. Um, and in the case of the chaff, that was actually closer to Australia, but uh, that was, again, continued uh, testing perhaps of the new Albanese government in Australia to, to show that, by the way, Mr. Prime Minister, you know, welcome to Canberra uh, and, and power. Um, we're going to be uh, pressuring you unless you give in to some of our demands that you know full well that we want to make. Um, so there are a variety of reasons. They've also, of course, uh, at Shangri-La Dialogue, um, already made some um, uh, peace overtures in, the, in a very small way. But you have uh, the defense, uh, National Defense Minister, General uh, Wei Feng-ha, meeting with the South Korean uh, Defense Minister um, uh, and agreeing to hotlines for both Navy and air um, forces. Um, and of course, these are air encounters. Uh, we already know about sea encounters. Um, at least that suggests that as General Austin, Secretary Austin rather, uh, you know, meets with, with the General Wei uh, at, on the margins of the Shangri-La Dialogue, there will also be a discussion about these risk reduction, reduction measures. So it may be they're acting up in part to highlight the diplomacy uh, that is going to be at least getting headlines out of Shangri-La, even if they make relatively little difference uh, in the air and on the ground. Uh, so basically precipitate uh, the crisis in order to then engineer a potential solution to the crisis and show yourself to be the statesman. It's the added advantage of highlighting what you're about to do diplomatically, yes. Um, now, let's uh, talk briefly uh, about North Korea's nuclear test. It's coming up. Uh, what's the significance of it, the import of it, right? I mean, I believe this is tied to a, 
an anniversary, a one-year anniversary. Uh, walk us through what it means and how the international community has to respond, right? I mean, we've said we'll never tolerate North Korea as a nuclear nation. It's not really up to us to tolerate it or not, uh, frankly, because the Chinese violate all the United Nations embargoes and everybody kind of looks away. Why? Because they want to keep doing business with China. I mean, this to me is kind of easy, but you know, walk us through what it means and how the international community needs to respond to it and whether or not they will be able to respond to it, given that the Russians and the Chinese continue to uh, have a Security Council veto. Well, North Korea hasn't used their nuclear testing facility <clears throat> since 2017, and they announced it was essentially being shut down in 2018. That was the height of the summit diplomacy, including the June 12 uh, first ever meeting between the U.S. president and the North Korean leader, the uh, Singapore summit between Trump and Kim. Um, and so this would be the 2018 um, anniversary, four years on, uh, while leaders, while defense leaders are in Shangri-La uh, in Singapore, this is when many people suspect we'll see the seventh nuclear test. Um, it may be a, a small nuclear test. Their sixth one was their largest to date, um, you know, well over 100 kilotons, maybe as many as 350. Um, this may be for more a, a tactical nuclear uh, weapon and to dem demonstrate that North Korea is going to be able to field such a, a diverse arsenal of weapons uh, to deter aggression against North Korea, but may even be able to use this coercively um, to intimidate and to threaten uh, a possible minimal or small nuclear use in the future. They have a long way to go with this, but they are very effective at rattling uh, sabers and getting uh, a lot of attention. Um, and uh, they would love to be present at the Shangri-La Dialogue without actually having to, uh, to be there in person. Uh, and uh, obviously the uh, nuclear uh, ballistic missile submarine program is very important to North Korea and working on a, on a smaller tactical. Is, is there a sense this is the submarine launch tactical warhead that they're testing? Um, it could be for the submarine, but it, it, could, it could also be just for a mobile land uh, attack uh, weapon. Um, and in fact, I think it is the latter in this case, but we'll, you know, it could be for both. Um, you know, they haven't uh, demonstrated yet that kind of um, small nuclear capability um, not to mention just the so-called miniaturization of a warhead. Um, they have a lot of challenges still in their nuclear program, even though we give them credit with having, uh, you know, presumably dozens of nuclear weapons. Um, let me uh, ask you about uh, the Cambodia base uh, coming on the heels of uh, the Solomon Islands. Um, you know, I should point out to the audience, right, there was this perception, you know, the Chinese are not interested in uh, overseas bases. They have no global aspirations. They're just regional. And then we saw the Djibouti base. Uh, but even before we saw the Djibouti base, we saw uh, uh, Vietnam of all countries sort of say, hey, well, uh, Cameron Bay uh, is an international, it'll be a, you know, it won't be an American base. It won't be a Chinese base. It'll be an open international base. An interesting position for Hanoi to take given the, the sort of fraught history between uh, China and Vietnam for, for millennia. Um, and now we have the Solomon Islands, and now we've got Cambodia. Talk to us about the emerging Chinese strategy and where are the next places that we're going to see, right? I mean, Pakistan, Karachi is another base where uh, it's not a base per se, but I mean, it's a facility that the Chinese have been using. Sort of walk us through how, what the Chinese strategy on basing is regionally um, and, and whether the belated efforts by Australia and the United States and everybody else to sort of, we're always playing response ball as opposed to leading it, I guess, is, is, is my uh, concern. You know, so, so sort of where's this going next and how does everybody in the region need to deal with that? Because under 
under uh, a, a new Marcos government, they might find themselves at Subic Bay, given how close uh, you know Marcos is to the Chinese. Uh, and maybe Marcos's sister in particular, who's in the Senate and uh, in charge of a lot of foreign policy issues there. Um, I, I think, um, you know, we shouldn't be neither complacent nor uh, hysterical about what China's up to, but they clearly are telegraphing uh, future moves, just as the moves in the in the uh, Pacific Islands did not come out of nowhere. Uh, what the only thing that was surprising was when they um, uh, were were basically pressuring the South Pacific Islands to sign up to a multilateral security pact, not just an economic pact. That surprised some of the Pacific Islanders who wanted to immediately throw it into the Pacific Island Forum, uh, the multilateral institution down there in which uh, you know various island groups uh, are competing. Um, and it's, it was a setback for Chinese diplomacy. In the case of RIAM, um, you know, naval base uh, on the Gulf of Thailand, this is something we've seen coming over the last few years because there were a couple of facilities, uh, buildings that the Americans had helped to build. Um, it's also the site of where we've conducted bilateral naval exercises with the Cambodians. Um, um, and now they've had to break ground uh, and they couldn't conceal this. You couldn't really have a secret naval base. So they've had to come clean to some extent about the fact that uh, it's the PLA that's providing the assistance to upgrade the pier that allow more uh, ships, at least a couple of uh, ships to be uh, you know, resupplied uh, and, and to, to be docked. Um, other buildings where they'll have a Beidou satellite navigation facility, uh, and they'll maybe have a, an airstrip nearby with possible air access in Cambodia. That's the rumor. Um, if you put all those things together, you can see that the Chinese want to have a logistics, intelligence, you know, maritime domain awareness, uh, air capability um, in the southern portion of the South China Sea and, and on, the, on the western side of the South China Sea, even though this is the eastern side of the Gulf of Thailand. If you know the geography there in the Gulf of Thailand, you've got, um, you know, that's on the, you know, on the western half of the Gulf of Thailand. You have the, the Malay Peninsula, which is the southernmost tip of continental Asia. Uh, and in the middle of that uh, peninsula, you've got something, you know, called the Kra Isthmus, which is the most narrow area, where for a long, long time, there have been dreams about uh, digging a canal. Uh, and that would connect the Chinese uh, in, with another, yes, another choke point, but also another airway, another another seaway um, that uh, 700 miles north of the Strait of Malacca would avoid a lot of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands that the Indians own um, outside of the Strait of Malacca in the Indian Ocean. And so it would provide uh, the Chinese with more options for logistics, um, more intelligence options, more control over continental Asia, um, more control for projecting power further beyond the first island chain, uh, and, and across the Indo-Pacific. So if you put this together with the Solomons, the Pacific Islands, you would have to say, look, the Chinese are uh, growing their power projection capabilities. And as a prelude to that, they're uh, growing access points and possibly overseas bases. Um, that, yeah, this goes maybe from, if you think about the Kraw Peninsula, that Kraw Canal, by the way, is supposed to be done by the, the end of this decade. So it's not that long into the future they could have this sort of uh, east-west axis again, all the way to Djibouti, uh, where they do have a base uh, that, that covers other major choke points um, for uh, the Persian Gulf and out of the Mediterranean into the Red Sea. Um, you know, this could give the Chinese the kind of global reach um, that they seem to be aspiring for. And that's not hysterical. Um, you know, that's not an exaggeration. That just says that China is determined 
in this decade alone to be a rival of U.S. Uh, global naval and air power. And is there is there is there a concerted way to stymie that or not, from your perspective? Well, um, there are many ways, and uh, you know, for one thing, reminded that the U.S. Japan uh, air forces, for instance, are a real problem for any Chinese planner uh, trying to look at an invasion of Taiwan, for instance. When you think about the Shangri-La Dialogue, the keynote speaker this year is Prime Minister Kishida. By the way, Prime Minister Kishida and probably President Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea are going to be at the NATO summit at the end of this month, uh, which is unprecedented. Um, but in, in Singapore, Prime Minister Kishida is going to talk about um, the free and open Indo-Pacific vision uh, that the you know, quad countries of India, Australia, US, Japan share, but also ASEAN has its own Indo-Pacific outlook, which is very similar to this free and open Indo-Pacific envision form. Um, and he'll, he'll, be, he'll be harping on the fact that, look, you've got the Chinese doing these opaque security pact um, pressure deals in the South Pacific. You've got them opening up secret bases in Cambodia. I say secret in the sense that they're denying that it's going to have PLA access, even while there have been uh, PLA officials quoted anonymously in, in Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, about uh, they're going to have access to part of this base, and of course they will. It's you know, no kidding. Um, and um, you know they'll know in Southeast Asia at that meeting at the Shangri-La Dialogue that a free and open Indo-Pacific means not allowing one power exclusive control or you know dominant control over other neighboring countries. And so I think there was a shared concern about China's actions, and and there's a creeping, growing uh, cooperation both generally among even Southeast Asian countries but more importantly, among the stronger military powers of Japan, South Korea, Australia, European powers, India, there you see um, some serious military muscle coming together in interoperability, uh, I think in the air and naval space in particular. Um, we've got less uh, than uh, 10 minutes. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. Um, and we've sort of taken our swing uh, through the world. Uh, and I have to reserve 30 seconds at the end so Dove can talk to us about Iran and uh, the IAEA, or rather the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency's uh, you know, loss of confidence uh, in uh, Iran. Uh, Michael, uh, coming back to you, um, January 6th uh, Commission uh, is a necessary and uh, important uh, in Ever. Uh, I understand that it's highly politicized, but at the at the end of the day, um, we have to understand what it is that happened. It's a little bit like Watergate. The more you study, the more stunned you are. Even 50 years later, even as somebody who as a little kid followed it, uh, am stunned at the degree of corruption. Uh, and in this case, we had a president of the United States who lost the legitimate election. The people around him acknowledged he'd lost the legitimate election. He contrived the big lie. Uh, that 70% of Republicans now, unfortunately, believe uh, that the election was stolen. And the whole point of the committee is, we just want to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again, um, which may be impossible. Um, powerful first day of testimony. Uh, there are all sorts of criticisms about whether or not you know it should run longer and it should have been live or, or what have you. Um, what are the takeaways? And does this really change anything, uh, given that as this event was going on last night and reporters were covering it, I mean, a large part of the Republican ecosystem was not covering it or rather putting counterfactuals out there about what was being said. I mean, what made it powerful was it was the president's own people who were saying that, including his daughter, his son-in-law, his attorney general and others. Look, I think you're right. And look, people get their news from where they want to get their news because they 
the, the stations agree with their mindset. So a large portion of America wasn't watching last night. They're watching Fox or Newsmax or OAN. They were, weren't getting the narrative, or as you pointed out, we're getting a completely uh, different narrative. You know, I think, look, I, I watched last night, and I think some of it was very powerful. I frankly, I felt that one of the most powerful lines of the night came from Liz Cheney when she addressed many of her Republican colleagues for defending the indefensible, saying there will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. I think it was very strong and very powerful. Uh, but however, it's June and there will be a series of additional hearings held. Uh, I, I do think that viewership will start to decline on these, uh, but the election is not till November. And something happened this morning that really steps all over the strong message that came out last night. And that was the inflation numbers were much higher uh, than anticipated. I mean, the consumer price index hit a level today uh, for May, not seen since 1981. So yeah, 8.6 instead of 8.2, which was uh, what the estimated number was. Exactly. You know, the Dow was down uh, 750 points uh, today. It was down over 600 yesterday. Uh, so people's retirement accounts are getting hit. Their energy prices, their food prices are soaring. And I think that that is where the focus is going to be. And you're going to see Republicans talk about that, too. You saw Kevin McCarthy say yesterday, why aren't the Democrats holding primetime hearings you know, on inflation? Uh, and in fact, the Republicans have announced plans to release their own report on January 6th. To confer, further to muddle the issue, which will probably focus on uh, the security of the Capitol, why that, that wasn't uh, dealt yeah, with. Yeah, that's in a right. More it's, it's Nancy. Way. It's all Nancy Pelosi's fault. Right. Which, which, look, you know, uh, it's nonsense, right? The Republicans were in charge of the House just two years prior to that. And uh, if the Capitol was stormed, the same thing would have happened. It's, you know, it's stunning thing to all of us that Capitol Police weren't equipped to deal with, uh, with, with people trying to storm into the Capitol and the, the rules of engagement weren't clear, but that's a whole separate issue. Um, so, look, I think I, I think the Democrats are doing the right thing. I think the panel's doing the right thing. I think a lot of this, however, is going to be in the hands of the Justice Department. This panel's work will expire at the end of this year. Republicans will take control. They'll disband this panel. But, you know, Biden's Justice Department will still have two more years you know, to deal with this. Uh, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch. And I should point out, right, you uh, are a lifelong Republican as well and ran for Congress in the great state of uh, New Jersey. Um, Dove, uh, I want to go to you about whether it changes anything and what you thought were sort of the key takeaways and how it changes uh, the debate and the discourse. You two are a lifelong Republican um, and, um, you know, served in the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, uh, and have been um, a, a, a thoughtful voice uh, on the right for a long time, even though I think uh, everybody knows that you broke with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, walk us walk us through what you thought was interesting and whether this changes anything. And Patrick, want to get your sense as well uh, as as somebody who has served in a bipartisan capacity and a, truly in an independent bipartisan capacity uh, throughout your career. Go, go ahead. Well, I was on a plane to Turkey, uh, so uh, I really read the reports uh, in, in the media. And it depends on which media you were reading, as Michael said. One of the things that I have found uh, is that people uh, basically uh, swallow whatever they want to believe, as Mike said as well. And I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. Uh, quite frankly, how many people on the Democratic side were convinced by the Libya hearings? Whether the hearings were right or wrong doesn't matter. The Democrats dismissed them from day one. And I think that's what you're seeing on the majority of the Republican side, what whether they know deep in their hearts, the politicians, that is, that what Trump did was absolutely wrong. Uh, they've got primaries. They've got 
the base that they have to win in the elections. And so you're not going to hear very much noise about any of this. And the hearings will go on. They will be recorded. They will be they will go down in history. Uh, I think Liz Cheney will be a profile in courage. But will it make much of a difference? I happen to think it won't. It should, but it won't. Um, I, I agree with you, but I would disagree in one thing in regards to, uh, uh, you know, Libya was was truly a tempest in a teapot compared to what this was in terms of an organized effort by an American president. Yeah, but look, my, my point was not was not that. I wasn't trying to compare Libya to this. I mean, this was criminal and Libya was was what it was. My point was simply that just as Democrats uh, totally dismissed Libya before they heard anything about it, I think Republicans are doing the same thing right now. Uh, Patrick, uh, your your view uh, and how. Uh, right. I mean, I thought it was interesting that the only foreign power that was raised in this was uh, the Chinese defense minister or Chinese chief of defense calling Mark Milley up and saying, what the hell is going on over there? Uh, and and that made it in. From from your perspective, does this change anything? And how does this play into uh, whether it's, it's, it's with Chinese or Russian narratives at the end of the day? Well, it may not change anything, but it's still important. Um, I, I don't think they're going to prove conspiracy in, in a way that's going to change minds from what people think already. I mean, after all, the 6th of January happened in plain view. Um, but truth matters and deserves repeating. And I think the country has to come together on first principles. We have to remember where we agree. Um, and we should agree that uh, on the peaceful transfer of power uh, as a hallmark of American democracy, uh, in our constitutional order. Uh, and I think we do have to be aware, as several authors have pointed out in their recent books that have gotten lots of attention, um, you know, that the conditions for political violence are uh, abundant. Um, and so I just think it's incumbent upon leaders in both political parties um, to uh, encourage restraint uh, when it comes to incitement, because at one point that's sort of missing from this is that we are living in this advanced digital age that we've never lived in before, where misinformation is so uh, ubiquitous and, 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 and powerful and the reach is incredible. Um, so it's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with Liz Cheney as a, as, as a profile in courage, but, you know, that's my view and others will disagree. The point is that um, we still have to come together on these basic principles, no matter where you stand on this. The one encouraging part of this uh, exercise as well was, you know, to hear Ivanka Trump, uh, to hear uh, the former attorney general, um, you know, it, it does suggest that a different person in the White House would have acted differently. And so our institutions are, are strong, but they're not invulnerable. Uh, well, again, I mean, the institutions are composed of people, right? Uh, the building itself doesn't know what to do. Uh, and it's about uh, people who are uh, operating within norms and conventions. And, and this is what you do. You know, you step down. Uh, you know, something very bad happened on your watch. You step down as opposed to blaming everybody else for uh, what happened. Last uh, thing, Dove, you get the last uh, 30 or so seconds. Uh, International Atomic Energy uh, Agency and Iran. Um, you know, give us give us your sense where we are, because it's history repeating itself circa, you know, 2003. 2003. Or so. yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Iran didn't provide answers to the man-made traces of uranium that were found at three undeclared sites. And a couple of days back, uh, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, 
censured Iran, which it hadn't really done in a couple of years. So yesterday, Iran began to disconnect 27 IAEA cameras at nuclear sites. And it's also preparing more centrifuges at the Natanz uh, facility. And what this really means to me, I think, is that the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, is, is really quite dead right now. Remember that one of the leading opponents of the deal is the Democratic chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob Menendez. And Iran, uh, like Ukraine, is one of the few issues that both parties agree on. Uh, in this case, uh, there's not much sentiment for a deal. And I suspect that one of the reasons that Mr. Biden is running to Saudi Arabia is the deal I think that the administration hoped would release Iranian oil. If there's no deal, they've got to find oil somewhere. And that means going to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. And uh, however much the administration doesn't really feel like it wants to go to the Saudi Arabia, the president feels he has to go. Uh, this deal, if, if the JCPOA, if the nuclear deal somehow survives, it'll be a miracle. Uh, and uh, then how soon before we have an Iranian nuclear test, what is that uh, and what does that mean? And does that become causes belli for Israel, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates? Or does this well, does, the that, does that happen I, and does everybody else, you know, e even though there is discussion yeah. that. The Pakistani bomb is really the Saudi bomb as well, right? I mean, so. Yeah, my guess is that the Iranians are much too clever to actually have a nuclear test. They're not North Korea. Remember, the Israelis, even though everybody knows that they have a nuclear capability, the Israelis have never acknowledged it. And the Iranians might do the same. After all, they've officially said that they shouldn't be doing this anyway. Uh, they've always said it's for peaceful purposes. They will they will simply. Uh, refuse to uh, acknowledge or deny so that they'll be in the same place as the Israelis. And that will create a major dilemma for the Saudis and the Emiratis, and maybe the Egyptians, as to whether they should try to go nuclear or not. And it'll create a major challenge for us uh, to A, restrain the Israelis if the Israelis think that they want to go ahead and attack Iran, uh, even though Iran hasn't acknowledged that it has nuclear capability. Uh, and secondly, how do we prevent uh, proliferation in the Gulf region, because uh, many of most of those countries will assume that whatever Iran says, in fact, it has a nuclear capability. So uh, if the JCPOA dies, it creates a whole bunch of new challenges for the United States and for the West. Yeah. And Vago, I'm just adding on to Dove's point there. This it does have global ramifications. When you think about China putting the hardcore press right now in Australia, over uh, its obligations in the non-nuclear uh, proliferation treaty um, over the AUKUS deal. And sub even though nuclear power submarines shouldn't be uh, equated with nuclear weapons, uh, China's still doing their utmost to, to make sure they are equated. And then you have the add on the no North Korean nuclear test that's expected to be soon. Um, there are real challenges here for the nuclear non-proliferation regime uh, globally. So you know the fact that this deal is clearly fallen apart with Iran um, just leaves the world uh, at loose ends over uh, how do we rein in nuclear weapons. And, and uh, Michael, uh, just very briefly before we go, no love lost for this deal on the Hill at all, as Dove said, correct? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, because even a lot of the Democrats who uh, did support it did so, you know, reluctantly. Um, but, you know, uh, then but a lot of people who opposed it also opposed the administration getting out of it uh, because they thought it was, was working. Um, you know, so 
uh, look, I don't think there's a lot of enthusiasm on it for the Hill, but, you know, I, I've been sitting in a lot of meetings recently where this subject has uh, come up with some of the people I do work with. And um, there is still some optimism that a deal still might uh, come together. So it'd be interesting to see. And I, and I would point out, too, I think Dove is, is correct. But remember, the, 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 the test the South Africans did in 1979 uh, was believed to be a joint Israel-South Africa test of a nuclear weapon. Uh, so it's possible the Israelis did test a nuclear weapon with the South Africans back in 79. So, uh, but I also agree that the Iranians are too smart and would not act like the North Koreans did. But this is you know, very, um, you know, still very shaky territory, especially for our allies in the region. Gentlemen, uh, thank you very much. Uh, absolutely terrific discussion. Thanks so much for your time. I uh, hope you guys have a terrific weekend, a great week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.